0: Signs that say, all these people are littering, look at how much you're littering. And it actually increases people's likelihood that they're going to litter there because they see that, oh, everybody else litters here, so I may as well. It was devastating and really affected my sense of self and my sense of identity. Yeah, I only used the doctor title... work so essentially to tell people that I'm out of my training period of getting a PhD I've done my apprenticeship I'm now a fully fledged professional I suppose got it and when did that happen that was February this year so I'm technically a very
1: new doctor amazing and it's a PhD in behavior science yeah, in behavioural science. But
0: I've been a researcher for maybe seven or eight years now. I've been in, in and around research, but not had the rubber stamp.
1: Got it. Um, okay, so audience disclosure before we start. Alex and I know each other from school and we recorded a podcast all about behaviour science But I guess we forgot to do like helpful case studies of behavioural science that people can use in their everyday life. So we're back. We also had like bad internet connection and whatever. So we're back um, to talk about behavioural science. And I think to make sure I don't get like carried away asking random questions, we can just like get straight into it. And then we'll do growing up in a little bit. Yeah, that sounds really good. And thank you
0: for letting us have a go at the case studies. It's always fun to talk about the theoretical stuff, but it's not necessarily useful for people to hear about theory. It's probably more
1: useful to hear about how they can apply it in their own lives. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so quick definition to begin with. What is behavioural science? So
0: behavioural science is really the study of how we influence or change people's behavior and behavior is a measurable action so it's a thing that you can see somebody doing so for example you could see someone clap their hands you can measure that you can see that that's a distinct behavior or you can see someone sit up or sit down or do exercise on the weekend or take a glass of water You can see all of those behaviours. So behavioural science is how do we influence
1: behaviour? Got it. For good, (laughs) in your case. For
0: good. (laughs) In my case, yes, but there is very, very good – no, it's not good. There is very effective behavioural science that happens in things like gambling or – marketing of junk food or marketing of soft drink they're really really good at behavioral science and they use some of the same tips and tricks that we use but personally I only do
1: for social good (laughs) or the tech companies I guess how to keep you on your phone
0: yeah absolutely keeping
1: you locked in keeping you engaged
0: yeah they're really really good at what they do
1: Okay. And how did you get interested in behavioural science? I've always been really interested, I suppose, in
0: psychology and exercise science. But I kind of came to a place of wanting to understand. So one person will do a behaviour or will be motivated to do something because of intrinsic reasons. So things that are attached to their maybe their self-worth or what's important to them or because it feels good to do the behavior behavior itself so some people like to go swimming because swimming feels really good whereas other people will do a behavior or take up an exercise routine because of extrinsic motivators so things outside themselves so that might be something like well if i exercise then i'll lose weight and look good that would be an extrinsic motivator so I'm really interested in that distinction between the intrinsic and the extrinsic and the other part of it that's always been really interesting for me is the creation of health policies and health programs to try and influence behavior and to make our population as healthy as possible but how do you do that how do you influence somebody to stop smoking or to exercise more or to be careful about their sun exposure that's always been a really interesting question for me and i've i suppose my studies have gone down a pathway of looking at psychology then looking at public health and now with a phd in behavioral science it's kind of just built
1: got it okay cool yes and we'll go into like the whole pathway there afterwards but let's jump into a case study because I think that is like there are so many people listening or it's just all of us right that it's like that extrinsic thing like we want to change something in our life but it's like how do you make it stick and even you saying those definitions it just makes it seem so obvious it's like when you're doing something because you like doing it it's like obviously you're going to do it. But when you're doing something because yeah. you've been told you should, or like you know, it's kind of something you should be doing, it's so much harder.
0: Yeah, that's right. And there are, I suppose, a caveat is there are lots of different ways or theories or frameworks that are used to try and influence behaviour. I'm going to talk through one that is really commonly used in. Um, changing people's behaviour to improve health. But there are certainly other ones, and I'm not saying that this is the best one, but it's just it's a nice way to think through for people that are thinking how can they change their own behaviour, what are some things that they should be thinking through themselves.
1: Amazing. Okay. So, let's get into it. Great. So, I'm going to use the
0: example of, say you hear about... The importance of strength training so you hear that lifting weights a couple of times a week is really good for you it's good for your bone health and it's something that you should be doing and so you sign up to a gym but after a couple of weeks maybe a couple of months you realize actually the gym's more like a charity for me i'm paying them but i'm not using the service but you know you want to be exercising, but there's something that's getting in your way. So a way that we can think through that is called the COM-B model, so C-O-M-Dash-B, and that stands for Capability, Opportunity, Motivation and Behaviour. And that's from um, Susan Mickey and her colleagues at UCL. So a way that you can think through... Each of those things would be to look at somebody's capability. So that's the knowledge and skills and abilities to engage in the behaviour. So um, that's your mental state, um, maybe your physical strength and your skills. Then you've got opportunity. So that's your physical opportunity, the opportunities provided by the environment or social opportunities, um, and that might be like free training classes and then you've got motivation so those are the internal processes that influence your decision making and your behavior so that could be a reflective process involved in making plans or automatic processes such as impulses and inhibitions that are kind of the two main areas that we look at so if we think through the example of um, starting to lift weights the first thing would be to do is to maybe you could get out a, of a pen and paper to do this, but you could think through, okay, well, what are some of the barriers that I have to my capability? So do I know enough about lifting weights? Do I know how to do the different exercises? Do I know what range of motion to use? Do I know the different um, machines at the gym and how to use them safely and effectively? And then do I have the skills to do that? So... Can my body get into the correct positions in order to maybe follow um, some different strength training programs? Or do I have the physical strength? So if I go to the gym and try to lift, deadlift 100 kilograms, am I going to be able to do that the first time? So starting to think through some of those barriers that might get in the way or things that get in the way. The other way of looking at it is to look at what are some of your facilitators or things that might help you or things that you already have in your skill set to help you change your behaviour. So for capability, maybe you have read a couple of books on strength training. You might follow some Instagram people that are reputable sources of um, strength training knowledge and can you think through how you might gain some more skills or some more knowledge that you feel safer and have the capability to be changing your routine? So that's one aspect. That would be capability. The next would be opportunity. So do you have the physical opportunities or the opportunities in the environment to try and start strengthening at the gym? So if the gym is an hour away from your house and you've got to take three buses, that's going to be something that's going to get in the way potentially of you going to the gym. But if you have a gym that's five minutes away, then that's going to provide better opportunity for you. So you want to think through what are the different things that are influencing whether or not I have the opportunity to go to the gym and to do strength training at the gym And then you've got your motivation.
1: Sorry, go on. And that would be like your schedule as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That would be your schedule. So if you are somebody, I don't know, works in investment banking and you're at the office at 7am and you don't leave till 11pm, maybe there's not time, but maybe you could find time in your day. So thinking about how you might be able to alter things to create opportunities to try and reduce some of the barriers that you might have. And then the last one is motivation. So the reflective process is involved in making plans. So that's kind of leads back to the opportunity. But if I plan to go to the gym, so maybe in the morning I put out my exercise gear, I've got my shoes ready, I've got comfortable shoes, then that's going to help me to be motivated in the morning. It's kind of going to reduce some of those barriers to getting up and going. Or trying to um, attach some of your um, your automatic motivation to um, habits or things that you do already. So potentially maybe every afternoon you drive home past the gym, that's one of your habits. Can you change it so that you go into the gym on your way home? Can you put your stuff ready so that it, you can kind of attach your gym going to something that's already going on
1: in your life mm. interesting yeah how much do is habits a big part of behavioral science
0: yeah it's certainly one massive part of behavioral science and there's that really really good book that is um james clear's book which atomic is, habits yeah atomic habits which is a great example I think, of making the habit part easy to understand. And in his book, he goes through a process of getting you to identify and think through different barriers and facilitators to your own habits. So that's, um, yeah, a really good example if you want something to go away and read. Um, I suppose the thing about behaviour change is, as you would have heard, we've gone through so many different things that you can try. And there are going to be lots of different barriers and facilitators and I think for people at home it's really great to try and think through well maybe what's the most easy one for me to change that's going to have the biggest influence so maybe that is that the reason that you're not going to the gym is because you don't feel like you're going to be able to do it in a safe way because you don't know what exercises to do maybe a good example ..that you could try is to go to a strength training class where you're um, working with other people who are similar to yourself. Maybe you go to a beginner strength training class and you've got someone that's teaching you the ropes, that's showing you how to do things in a safe and effective manner. Um, And that would be um, a really good example of instruction on how to uh, perform the behaviour, which is a behaviour change technique that we know works for increasing people's knowledge um, or even getting um, some biofeedback. So that might be buying a new watch that gives you feedback on how hard you're working once you know what types of ranges that you want your heart rate to be in if you're going to go and do a new exercise program.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess the f- it's like defining the problem okay, I want to do this, but I'm not, or I haven't started. And then I, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of fear. Like sometimes it's like stuff that you you don't know what's blocking you. Yeah, so that's helpful to like think about it. What's stopping me? And sometimes, yeah, it's fear because it's like, oh, maybe I don't know what to do. But actually, like I feel <laughs> for this example, like I feel like in general the gym is scary even when you know it's in like the weights bit even when because it's like for us we did all those weights in rowing we're like always in the gym but then to go to a new gym (laughs) it's like oh my god there's all these people here like whatever it's intimidating but it's like identifying oh I'm just scared that I'm gonna look like an idiot or I even my personal trainer friend For anyone who's listening thinks it's so stupid. My friend who's literally a personal trainer, she was like, yeah, I'm so... I can't... If it's busy, like, I can't do it. Like, I'm so (laughs) intimidated. And that's literally her job. Um, But it's like, oh, okay, I have a fear around this. Because even if you do know how to do it, and then it's like, how can I feel more comfortable? Like, go with a friend or something. Oh, yeah, get, like, an intro class. And then it's like, okay, we got over the fear now I've actually started and then it's like what's blocking me from going regularly you know for people who are beyond that they're like I know how to go to the gym but I just can't like fit it in or find the time or whatever it is and then that's like yeah that habit stuff is so powerful if it if you can just crack it so it becomes part of your routine and that's what that's where all those hacks come in, right? Where it's like, okay, if you can just go, like even if you don't want to do anything, but it's like you just have to go in the door and stay there for 10 minutes and leave. And then it's like creating that habit.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm kind of glad that you mentioned about your friend saying who's a personal trainer that gets a little bit intimidated at the gym. I mean, I have have a degree in exercise science, and a PhD in behavioural science, but I still get intimidated going into the gym. And I actually chose this example because I have just come back from a couple of months break from the gym because I got really bored of the strength training that I was doing. And so what I've done recently is go through this myself and try and work out why am I not going to the gym anymore? What What's kind of got in my way? I haven't been going for two months when normally I would go every week. And what I've done to try and hack that is to join a new gym so we know um, that when you have life changes, it can be a really good idea to start a new habit or to try and influence behaviour. So I tried to do that in my own life by readjusting the um, opportunity that I had readjusting my environment to join a new gym that I was excited to be a part of and then the other part for me is that I handed over the capability part to someone else so now I go to a group class where someone else tells me what strength training exercises to do they tell me how many sets how many reps how much to lift and that's working really well for me at the moment because it's taking some of that pressure of well, I don't want to design my own strength training right now. I can't really be bothered. I kind of need to be told what to do. So it's a, it's a really good way, this, of looking at your capability, your opportunity and your motivation to try and think through potential solutions for yourself.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the key. It's like when you find something you enjoy, like when you get over the first thing and then you're like, okay, I love going to the gym by myself because that's when I, like, listen to the Growing Up podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, you know, whatever it is, it's like I get to be by myself and listen to music or, like, I get to whatever. Whereas when – or, like, I love being in a group class. Yeah, I have – at this moment I'm, like, fully obsessed with F45 and I'm, like (laughs) – (laughs) addicted <laughs> to going. It's so weird. It's like I'm so But it was like the big change the big like push to like get into it. And then after you go and then it's like oh my god I love this. But if you're trying something and you don't love it, it's like yeah well don't do it. Try something else. It's like there's so many um but I guess in this example it was like okay someone who loves Someone who loves running and that's great. Running's always the one where people are like, oh, I feel like I should run. I'm like, why? If you don't like running, like you don't need to do it. There are so many other things you can do.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing that we want people to do is some type of aerobic cardiovascular work. But that could be swimming. That could be walking briskly. That could be bike riding. It could be all sorts of different things. If it's not feeling good in your body, then don't do it. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Okay, so have you is your gym hack successfully working?
0: Yeah, I've been going for 3 weeks now, and I'm really really liking it and loving being told what to do instead of having to think about it myself, but I should say that that comes with an element of privilege that I'm able to pay for that at this time um to do that, and that's not always possible for everybody, so Sometimes when you're going through these um, capability, opportunity and motivation, you need to hack kind of what's happening in your life. So maybe you're, I don't know, saving for something. And so you might need to do YouTube videos for a little bit, but how can you find the one that's going to work best for you? What's the one that, you know, you connect to most, that um, helps your knowledge, helps your opportunities, helps your motivation? So it's really... The whole point of this is finding out what's happening in your life. What are your own barriers? What's going to help you to do different changes?
1: Yes, I love that. Yeah, I feel like that is you can just remove if you don't like being in gym environments, which is kind of me. I just did so many of that, of those either YouTube, like Joe Weeks, love that guy, or whatever your Australian equivalent. Kayla, or whoever it is. Um, Or or you can just do body weight stuff in your room. Like, it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, on YouTube, doesn't cost anything. Like, don't need space. Like, need, like, minimal amount of space to just do, like, push-ups or burpees or whatever. And then you can also do that with a friend, like, if you want the social aspect. Um, But yeah, there are so many... But that's what I was going to ask you. That is that that must come into behavioral science like that. The whole penalty thing, because, yeah, if it was me and it was like, I'm promising myself to get up and go to the gym. No way would I get out of bed. But because I do it with classes, like class pass or F45 or something, it's like there's a financial penalty if I don't turn up.
0: Yeah. And that's a really interesting one. Um, We know that incentives can and can work but you've got to be really careful about which person you're talking to about that and what is the value of the incentive so for example maybe it's only a two dollar cancellation fee for some people that's not going to be enough of a motivator to get them into the gym so it's going to be different for everybody Um, and that really comes into
1: thinking about behavioral economics which is another kind of area again. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting on the fines because in London, it's like there are just people breaking all the road rules all the time, but it's like the cost to pay the fines, it's just like whatever, like they, it's just part of like the cost of driving, mm-hmm. whereas I think it's Finland or somewhere did means-adjusted um, fines, so it was some like professional athlete got like a twenty three thousand dollar fine parking fine or something wow
0: and then that kind of plays into that um if you're somebody who is on a lower income then that that fine's going to hit you so much harder you know a hundred dollar parking fine versus somebody who just parks wherever whenever they like because they don't care about a hundred dollars the the incentive is a really 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 interesting area of behavioral science. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Um, should we talk about the implementing the um, health incentives at work as well? Because that's the other thing I was thinking. Like, with this example, that's great that there's people out there who intend on like if they have the knowledge, they have the education. And they want to make the positive change in their lifestyle and have, yeah, the, you know, the ability to take time to like think about it and then to, yeah, I guess the, yeah, the privilege involved in having the time to think about it and then incorporate this into your life. But there must be such a big, yeah, it, it it's like a huge amount of the population or just all of us in general, that we need other influences to help us because something, you know, just like sitting at a desk all day or like the whole example with the food that's around us all the time. Um, so when the, when the environment outside us is changed, that can be really helpful. Is that kind of related to some of the workspace workplace stuff?
0: Yeah, it's certainly related to – so I'm just trying to think of an example of a workplace one, but um, a good one at the moment actually is that we are seeing lots of high rates of burnout right now for – you know, we're coming out of COVID. um, Burnout is really when you don't – when you feel like you don't have control over your work and you have ongoing chronic stress within your work – um, and they've recently done a trial in the UK with a bunch of companies that looked at implementing a four-day work week and lots of people would have heard about. And they were they found that um, rates of burnout decreased with a four week four day work week, um, which is a really interesting change of environment for people and to see how that affected their stress levels and to see how that affected their, um, kind of their perception of the control that they have over their own lives and to ch- try and reduce some of the stress there. So that's actually quite a, a nice example for um, burnout and changing environment.
1: Mm-hmm. And so for the work you do, is it like um, you've ident- like public health has identified something and then has identified something that can make a positive change and then but then they need help implementing the change because <clears throat> just like writing it on a pamphlet or something isn't going to do anything you actually need to figure out how to change behaviors yeah that's right um so much of the work that we do so i'm um
0: at Action Lab at Monash University in the Department of Human-Centered Computing, which means that we do digital health. And a lot of the work that we do here is trying to um, combine two areas of research. So one is implementation science. So that's how do you get an evidence-based practice into health services or into education settings or essentially how do you improve health using evidence-based strategies and then the other part is co-design. So how do you design a program that uses um, people who will eventually use the program or different stakeholders? So that might be the end users, so um, the general population potentially or the program managers or clinicians, be that allied health or um, you know, nurses, midwives, GPs, other doctors, um, and you involve all of them in the design of your um, your program, so that the program is meeting their needs, instead of assuming that when you design a program that you will be able to design for everybody's needs without asking them. So that's something that we've you kind of see in um, health research that they say that there's billions of dollars of waste of research, health research that we do. And this way of thinking of implementation science and co-design is really trying to address that we need to include the end users, of course, in anything that we design. And we need to think through strategies for how we're going to implement an evidence-based practice into services. So um, a really good example of that is um, actually a funny one. So when you... um, to hospital and you have surgery they give you non-slip socks or at least they used to give you non-slip socks but we know that the non-slip socks are actually more dangerous than walking without the non-slip socks which is potentially counterintuitive for a lot of people Um, so we need to work out a way of de-implementing or getting that practice of using non-slip socks out of the health service. So through implementation and co-design, you would think through what are some of the evidence-based implementation strategies. So some of them might be that you have clinical champions, so doctors or other allied health professionals or nurses or midwives that really champion and speak up for not using these (coughs) non-slip socks. Or you would have... um, Try to include... Leaders in your um, in your development and um, implementation. So making sure that you've got people who are at the top levels of the health service that are included in trying to disseminate this new practice. And through doing those wow. kind of iterative steps, you think through well, what's going to work in this health service versus other health services, um, and then how do we get that thing to not be done anymore. So how do we take away the non-slip socks?
1: Got it. Because basically you have an idea that exists that everyone thinks, well, it's just part of doing surgery. You're given, like, everyone thinks non-slip socks are good. It's part of how it works. It's just a thing that happens. And now you have to change it so people like, no, why? why not? Couldn't you just go straight to the like procurement team and be like, "Stop ordering non-slip socks." Or- yeah,
0: that's definitely one way of doing it, but you'd have to be quite careful about how would you know that they would listen to you? Why would they listen to you versus someone else? Or one of the other things that we have that have has been reported with that. Problem specifically is that they had so many non-slip stocks in storage that people kept using them because it was assumed that, well, we've got them, let's use them, even though the safety wasn't necessarily going to work. So we can make – I think that's the thing that as researchers or individuals or companies even, we can make a lot of assumptions about the way that we should try and implement something, and evidence-based thing or a non-evidence-based thing. We make assumptions about people. We think that people will be the same as us and do the same things that we do. But we know that that's not true. And it's really important to include, to talk to people and to understand their own barriers and facilitators to the thing that you're trying to do to try and change behaviour. Because ultimately, implementation science, um, it really comes down to changing people's behaviour to try and get evidence-based health practices
1: up and running interesting and and you don't want to go down the route of of regulation to be like because otherwise it just well because i guess that's a values thing right like if we lived in a authoritarian like dictatorship and then it's easy one person's decision can just be like outlawing non-slip socks and it happens but it's like we want to live in a free society with democracy and without tons and tons of regulation
0: Uh, yeah and I think the other thing is certainly you could use regulation but that's only one tool in the toolkit of many different things that you could use so when we think through implementation strategies we try to use lots at the same time or even behaviour change strategies, we tend to use a few at the same time to hit the different people in the population. So what works for one person is not going to work for another person. So um, if I said to you, "Well, um, I want you to go to the gym, and I think that you should go with three of your friends every time," maybe that will be motivating for you, but that might not be motivating for someone else. Maybe they really don't like exercising in front of other people and that's maybe that's a fear thing for them. So at the root, I suppose, of behavioural science is not assuming that people will act the same way that you act and not assuming that all people will act in the same way altogether.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting because on the regulation point, there's still – because you could just – pass a regulation, no hospitals can use non-slip socks, but then it's like, how is that communicate? how does that actually implemented like, do you have a you know, roaming slip socks, guards going around, checking, you know like, that obviously costs money and like, there's so it's so interesting, there's so many things involved, and as we were just talking about, even if you make something a rule, like doesn't mean people like people can pay the financial penalty if they want to break it so it doesn't mean the behavioral the behavior changes as with the you know parking fines and whatever
0: yeah yeah exactly and another really good example that I love to talk about as well is that when we see people when people have problems with littering a lot of councils have um implemented um, signs that say there's been lots of litter here litter is really really bad and all these people are littering look at how much you're littering and you'd think oh wow for some people they think oh wow I'm not going to litter anymore wow aren't we so bad as a community that we're hurting the environment in this way but by showing people that lots of people are doing this behavior you actually are enforcing a social norm and it actually increases people's likelihood that they're going to litter there because they see that, oh, everybody else litters here, so I may as well. So it's kind of backfiring on the thing that you're trying to get them to change. You've got to be really careful that your behaviour change
1: strategy or implementation strategy doesn't backfire. Interesting. And so did they figure out a more effective method for littering?
0: Yeah, I think they have... I mean, it's certainly not my area of expertise. I'm much more in the health realm. But um, yes, there are definitely more effective behaviour change strategies to prevent littering in different places, yeah.
1: Cool. Okay, let's let's talk about your background and how you got interested in health and ended up here. And then we can talk about, the shared decision making that stuff that you did in your PhD as well, which I think is is interesting. Yeah,
0: absolutely. More than happy to. Um, okay. so, yeah, so how did you grow up? So I grew up in Melbourne. I have a family of four, so mum, dad and my little brother. Um, and obviously we went to the same school high school and during school I was lucky enough to hear about and pick up rowing as a sport I wasn't particularly I think maybe because I was a year younger than everybody throughout school I didn't feel that I was particularly good at school I wasn't particularly good at maths or science it just didn't really sit well and it wasn't until grade 11 and grade 12 when I got to do subjects like psychology and health and human development and PE that I started to get really interested and in better grades because I was actually interested in what we were studying rather than, you know, maths and science as much. Um, but alongside all of school, I was always a rower. So that's been a really, really big part of my life. And so when I was in, or when we were in grade 12, we had a couple of scouts come out from the US and watch us row one morning. And after they came up and said to a few girls and said, look, we're, we're scouts from the US. Would you be interested in rowing at college? Is that something that you might like to do? And when they said that, I was so excited and really felt like this is the right path for me, this feels really good. Of course I want to go and study in the US, that sounds amazing. So through um, a few months of back and forth with coaches, I eventually got a scholarship to study at Washington State University, which is a rural town on the border of Idaho and Washington State in a place called Pullman. It's actually where they grow most of the US's lentils and wheat. So, yeah, it's a really beautiful area, but it's quite far removed. Um, And I rode there on a four-year scholarship um, and had a really, really good time. If you think about what it looks like, I don't know if anyone's seen Bama Rush, that new um, uh, HBO Max um, program where they show what it's like to rush a sorority it really was like that it was exactly what the college experience looks like on tv that's what it was like in real life it was amazing but it was also incredibly difficult being so far away from my family being very young and trying to perform as an athlete and to perform as a student at college Yeah, so I studied – I, have, when I was at school, I kind of thought maybe I wanted to be a doctor or a nurse. I was always interested in health. Um, but when I tried to do pre-med, the pre-med track, it was really not for me. It was all the organic chemistry and the difficult math subjects, which were – Not my cup of tea. I really liked the anatomy, the physiology, um, but the harder subjects I kind of struggled with. So I ended up doing exercise science and psychology because that's what I enjoyed. And it was really easy to take what I was learning in those classes and apply it to my own rowing. Um, So it was kind of cool to do it in class and then go and practice it outside outside of class. What's
1: an example of that?
0: So I think... Yeah, so the one that always comes back is thinking about that intrinsic and extrinsic motivation that I was talking about at the start. So sometimes I would be having a really bad day at training and thinking, you know, I don't want to be here. I don't want to work hard today. I'm not feeling it. It's not feeling good. But to remember that my reason for rowing was because I really love the feel of – kind of you feel like you're flying across the top of the water for anybody that's ever been in a fast rowing boat you can't really describe the feeling but it kind of feels like flying and when you're in sync with everybody else in the boat and the blades are going you know across the top of the water not touching the water and um, you're moving together as one that's a really incredible feeling so I would always try and center myself in I'm rowing because I really enjoy this feeling I really enjoy what it's like to um, go fast and to have fun and this is fun for me so there's kind of that mental switch and I knew that I could do that and f- kind of fix how I was perceiving and being motivated to row well each training session whereas if I was thinking about um, uh, how other people were that I was competing against were doing or thinking you know I've got to row fast because I want to get into this good boat and that w- that means X for my life. Um, I never per- performed well, particularly under those circumstances. And I think because that was an extrinsic motivation, like I wanted to perform well for my coaches so the coaches like me. That's not, that's not intrinsic, it's extrinsic and outside of myself. So that's one that really
1: helped. Interesting. And, yeah, because, of course, a lot of that's, out of your control as well like they might not pick you for whatever boat for so many different reasons that you never get to find out about
0: yeah exactly and they it's kind of thinking back it sounds so cliche but controlling the controllables like I can control how I feel in the boat I can control how I move my body in the boat but yeah they might be they might just want to give somebody else a turn at being in a in this specific boat for this specific day for whatever reason and I can't control that and they're not gonna tell me.
1: Yeah. Cause was that like every session like how often do the boats change? Is it like every week?
0: Yeah, so it would we had practice at three PM or we'd leave for practice at three PM every day and at around somewhere between twelve and one we would get the boats list. And for me, it was, I was anxious about it every single day just before, like during lunch, I'd be really nervous about it. And then the list would come out and then I would think about what does that mean for me? What did I do wrong yesterday? Why am I in the top boat? Why am I only in the second boat or the third boat? Why have I been dropped to the fourth boat this week? And that was kind of hard um, to deal with. But it made for um, feeling like you're always in competition with yourself and always feeling like you're in competition with all of your teammates. So, yes, you have really great relationship with your team, but you're always competing against them, which is can be also difficult if you're on scholarship because your worth is tied to their payment in you. They've paid for you to go to university. They've paid for you to be there. So if you're not performing then that can be troublesome for your scholarship. So it kind of, there's all these different incentives and different motivating
1: factors that are working. Hmm. And how intense was the training? It was
0: pretty intense. It was, you know, two or three trainings every day, um, which was... I really like every sh- day. Yeah, every day. I mean, Sunday, Sunday was normally a really easy day or a rest day that it would be, we'd be in the gym at five 45 in the morning doing weights. Often you'd have cardio at lunchtime, like steady state cardio. And then you would go row on the river in the afternoon. So yeah, it was a lot.
1: And you'd be on the river like
0: six days a week. Normally five days a week, yeah. We do big um, ergo sessions or rowing machine sessions on Saturdays and then kind of take Sunday a bit easier. Wow. And did you love it looking back? I really enjoyed the feeling of rowing and I wish – well, maybe I don't wish – I think I wish that I had have known that it was my last row when I was in the boat having my last row because I unfortunately was injured in my senior year of college. I had my last row at nationals, US nationals, college nationals and had my last race and I didn't know that it was. So I was... It's kind of a bittersweet. I don't feel like I got to finish rowing in the way that I wanted to.
1: Huh. And you've never rowed again since?
0: I think I've been in a boat maybe once since, but it didn't have that – I didn't feel like I was flying. I didn't feel like it was fun and effortless because it's hard to get a crew together and to get it to feel good. It's a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um. And the movement of rowing now really hurts because I've got, you know, a couple of herniated discs in my back. Um,
1: Yeah, it just, it doesn't feel good anymore for me. And so what was that like having your rowing career suddenly end with an injury? It was devastating
0: and really affected my sense of self And my sense of identity, because for the last, I suppose, decade before I was injured, I'd been, oh, that's Alex. She's tall. She's the rower. And it was so wrapped up with my sense of identity because I was good at rowing. I mean, obviously not an Olympian, not incredible by any means, but I was good at rowing. And to have that taken away from me suddenly while I was in a different country coming into my last year was really, really hard. Um, And without that support, um,
1: yeah, it it was really, really difficult. Yeah, because that's a massive, if that's like your life two or three times a day and presumably like your social life, your... And, yeah, because it's like were you living with these – it's like how much of your time would have been spent with these people who are all to do with rowing?
0: Yeah, it was almost 24-7. So um, I had a really amazing housemate in my last couple of years who was a runner, um, an Australian runner. But the rest of my living situation was living with rowers, so eating, sleeping, training with – rowers talking about it I was often in the same classes as them because a lot of us studied exercise science and psychology so I was constantly surrounded by it and to suddenly out of nowhere have that taken away from you but you still need to be part of that community and see it all the time was really really difficult and it was also a big sense of guilt because they were still working hard and I felt like I should be working hard to make our team better and to try and get us to the next level but I couldn't obviously because I was injured but I had a a big sense of guilt and shame almost about it like I was too weak and it was my fault for being injured of course it's not you can't I know that now but at the time it was really really hard to deal with that and I think with sport more generally we don't do a good job of preparing people to retire and preparing people for what it's like when you're not spending all of your time doing the sport. I was, I suppose a little bit lucky in that I really enjoyed research and I had done a bit of research in my degree and felt like it was kind of something that I wanted to pursue. So I put all of my time and energy into my research classes and getting better at doing research I had something to fall back on I guess but for you know a lot of athletes that's not necessarily the case if they haven't had that time or been prepared properly
1: Mm. but yeah that's that's even harder like your specific situation because yeah not only you away from your family you're in a small college town in the middle of nowhere There's nothing else, Uh, you know, it's not like you have family, other friends, you know, some kind of random job that's nothing to do with uni. Like everything is to do with uni and like rowing was a big part and then it's gone. It's like you can't. It's just there. Yeah, exactly. It was all consuming and you're
0: exactly right. It was in the middle of nowhere. So it wasn't even like I was in, I don't know, LA or New York or San Fran or even Seattle where there's other stuff to do um other communities to be a part of it really sport was everything there and my rowing community was everything there so to have that taken away
1: was yeah it was devastating did you at least manage to make up for like all the going out and social stuff you would have missed while you were hardcore training
0: (laughs) yes I did (laughs) I think I spent maybe most nights or at least yeah most nights of the week at the college bar once I was in my senior year which wasn't great but
1: yeah I certainly made up for lost time (laughs) nice okay so then what was your path after finishing up Your undergrad. So I finished up my undergrad
0: and was actually accepted into a PhD program at the same college. And so I was set to stay in Pullman for another seven years. But I started the semester, probably got three or four weeks in and realised this is not for me. I have made a huge mistake I don't want to be still living here. I really miss my friends and my family in Melbourne. And also the PhD program wasn't the right fit for me at that time because I don't think I was mature enough for a PhD. I needed a bit more life experience. And one of the things that we kept discussing in the PhD um, coursework was that, well, maybe you have a program or a thing that you want to get up and running with a a population of interest, but if you can't prove the cost benefit of that program, then there's no way you're going to be able to get it up and running. So it felt really pessimistic and like it was going to be a really, really hard slog, which I know now, health research, it it is difficult. Um, But at the time, I don't think I was quite ready for... um, for that, and needed to understand a bit more about the systems and organisations that health works within to try and make a change, I suppose. So I saw that the University of Melbourne had a really good Master of Public Health and that felt like it was the right decision for me because it meant that I could learn about different areas of the healthcare system and learn about... Um, creating programs and policies to make people's health better to learn about what's worked really well in the past and then also to um learn about the health economics of different programs so I ended up doing a major in health economics at Melbourne Uni um, and learned a lot a lot about policy and really all of the interacting systems that was Mm -hmm. super yeah super interesting great great highly recommend that master's degree
1: And so I guess it was in between when you'd left the PhD that you came and stayed with me in New York, right? But did you know what you were going to be doing at that point? Or you just knew you were going home?
0: I knew I was – I think I probably had just started applying to that program at Melbourne and I wasn't sure that I was going to get in um, because – when you're a student athlete it's can be quite hard to keep your grades up I mean I had perfectly okay grades but not outstanding um and I was really lucky to have gotten into a PhD program with grades that weren't stellar so yeah when I came to see you in New York which was so much fun I love New York and oh it's so happy to go back there anytime um yeah, when I came to see you, I think I was planning to do that master's, hoping to get into that master's.
1: And was your attitude at that point like, okay, this really horrible thing's happened, but I really like researching and I see can see a path forward and I'll move back to Melbourne and, like, figure things out?
0: yeah exactly I kind of was going from a place of I'll work things out when I get home I just want to be with my family I just want to be with my friends and my community and also to not feel like an outsider you know when you live in a different country you've got a different accent you often feel like you're different you're not from there Um, so yeah I wanted to feel like I was quote unquote normal Um, and I knew that I wanted to work in healthcare, but I didn't know what that looked like. And you, But you were confident you could figure out the path? Yeah, I was pretty confident I could figure out the path. I knew that doing a high-quality degree, I was probably naive to think this, I assumed doing a high-quality degree would mean that I would be able to work out what I wanted to do and get a job. And that's kind of... In the US system, you it's very common to do a master's degree. You don't get everything. Like you, a lot of people can't get jobs, specific jobs after their undergrad. You need to do a bit more study to become, you know, get the skills enough to get the job. Um, which is kind of similar to how Melbourne University now has the Melbourne model. So you do quite a broad undergraduate and then you specialise in your master's. So I felt that I needed to kind of specialise and hone my skills a little bit more from exercise science and psychology.
1: Mm -hmm. And then do you have time to quickly talk about the PhD and what the work you did on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my PhD um, was a behavioural science PhD and it was a thing called a graduate research industry partnership PhD, which essentially means that you are partnered with a government or industry organisation to work out answers to problems that they have. So I was partnered with the Department of Health in Victoria and Safer Care Victoria. And Safer Care Victoria is essentially the state's agency for monitoring safety and quality in health services. And in the year before, they before I started the PhD, they'd worked with consumers, worked with lots of different stakeholders to develop a framework called the Partnering in Healthcare Framework, which has different domains that health services are required to work on over a five-year period. And one of those domains is shared decision-making. But they didn't know how health services were reacting to the new policy. Um, They didn't know whether or not health services were implementing the new policy so my PhD was really focusing on, we have this new policy, it's been designed by consumers for consumers. How is it being um, reacted to and working in practice? And that was a really, really great way, I think, to do a PhD because it's so practical um, and answering real-world issues, but with obviously with the same theory and evidence
1: that you would do in a normal PhD. Mm-hmm. And the new policy, so consumers had identified that they wanted to be more involved in decision making with their doctors or health professionals.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So shared decision making is the process where um, you know that there is a decision that needs to be made about the patient or the consumer's um, healthcare and You engage with them in a conversation of saying well here are your options here are the risks and benefits of different treatment options and then trying to elicit their preferences their values their goals and having a two-way active conversation to make sure that whatever decision we decide to do next aligns with what that person needs and also aligns with the evidence base so it's a really um We talk about patient-centred care a lot these days. It's something that's thrown around a lot. Shared decision-making is a practical way of doing patient-centred care in practice. And so in Victoria, we have the policy from the Partnering in Healthcare framework that says health services need to do it, and then we also have, at the federal level, The um, National Accreditation Standards for Hospitals tell hospitals that they need to do shared decision-making. So there's kind of two big policy levers at the moment saying you need to include patients in decisions about their care. We also know from research that patients want to be included in decisions about their care. It's a big myth to say that um, patients want all of the decisions to be made by the clinician.
1: Mm -hmm. And then is that when you were working in the maternity wards?
0: Yeah, so I was really lucky that the Royal Women's Hospital have a big interest, um, and I suppose it's part of their values, that they uh, want to partner with women and make sure that they're providing exceptional care that includes women in decisions about their care. And so they were really interested to look at what was helping and getting in the way of their staff providing shared decision-making? And so we went through a series of um, interviews and then it ended up doing some co-design workshops that I spoke about earlier to look at different interventions to try and increase shared decision-making in practice. But my PhD really focused on well, what are the barriers from a systems level, from an organisational level and from an individual level, what's helping and getting
1: in the way people being included in decisions about their care Mm -hmm. and then yeah that's when there's interesting like cultural problems that you come across um that you were explaining to me that it's yeah that's a perfect example of like designing something but if you're not actually dealing with the system or talking to the people involved like if you propose a solution and it's like no we don't do that here like that's not how it works like I can't communicate that to this person or or whatever it is
0: yeah exactly right so for a really good example is that we know from the literature that giving people feedback from their peers can help to change behavior so in my mind I thought well great I'm gonna go to this co-design workshop and maybe suggest that we could have clinicians audit each other and see if they're doing shared decision-making or not. But as soon as I provided that example, they said, absolutely not. That would be so bad for our culture. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work in the Australian setting more generally because we don't want to have to be the ones to tell, to provide that type of feedback. Like it's a bit, maybe it's a bit too confronting. We didn't really get into why, it isn't appropriate, but for them it just it wasn't the right thing to do. But they came up with other solutions that would work for them. So um, recently in Australia we're starting to move towards electronic medical records. Well, we I mean, most hospitals have them now, but they're at a very basic level. They're not at the same level as they used in the United States, for example. We don't have that same capability and capacity in the system yet. Um, but they felt that electronic medical records was a really great way to ensure that documentation was correct between the clinician to the next clinician that would see the pregnant person Um, and that would help facilitate shared decision making so it's kind of trying to think of what systems we have what can work for us versus me coming along as a researcher thinking I've got all the ideas from the literature and trying to embed what I think will work without talking to the people who actually know what will work in the system
1: Mm -hmm. and I guess maternity maternity is really interesting because there's so many decisions involved and there's like different cultural or uh, like so many different schools of thought about how you should do the whole process
0: yeah, exactly. There's different schools of thought from between clinicians, between consumers, between their family members. There's a whole different range of ideas about the way that maternity care should be provided. Um, and I think that midwives often get caught in the middle of that, trying to do what the system says, then trying to follow what the guidelines say, but also be an advocate for the woman or the pregnant person and really sitting in that, that um, in the grey, in in between, while trying to advocate for the woman and ensure that she is having a healthy process and having a healthy baby, um, and also trying to stay within their own scope of practice, so that can be a really difficult thing. Um, but they do the most incredible job there at the women's. I can't speak more highly of what they do um but yeah it can be really difficult and the point of shared decision making is that we're bringing together the evidence so we have to stay on top of what the evidence says what are the risks and the benefits for different people but then we're also talking to the person and understanding their preferences and their values and goals so um a good example of that is that some people you know for whatever reason might have a this is quite a simplistic example, so excuse me, but they might have be terrified of needles. But if you don't engage with them and talk to them and understand that they have that fear, then maybe you're saying, well, we'll give you an epidural because you as a clinician, that's what you assume everybody wants. That's a very, very simplistic example. But just to kind of show that through shared decision-making, well, maybe we find out that, another alternative is better for this person for whatever reason in line with the evidence and in line with their preferences
1: Mm -hmm. and they then feel better being consulted about it
0: yes I suppose that's really the most important part is that people when they're included in decisions about their care they feel better about the decision that was made they don't regret the decision that was made a lot of the time and they don't feel conflicted about the decision that was made and also if the decision changes then they know the other treatment options so in labor for example if all of a sudden you haven't been consulted or spoken to about different options that you might face then that can be a really scary time to have to consent to something when you haven't heard or been provided examples before so it's kind of it's making going through a process of knowing your options, risks, and benefits, just in case the decision has to change later as well.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So you can see how that would be a really tough job to get. Do- you know, doctors, health professionals who are doing important work, stressed, overworked, and to be like, yeah, okay, the way you're doing stuff isn't like could be better can you make sure you treat your patients like this
0: yeah it can be yeah it's very very difficult to change um people's behavior especially in a system where we've got people that are overworked and underappreciated essentially so especially for our nurses and midwives as well um and even the administrative staff and you know, the other staff around the health services, everybody's tired, everybody's not feeling great. And so to try and put something new into the system can be quite difficult. But it, my um, experience in talking to a whole lot of clinicians is that, well, at the end of the day, we want what's best for the patient. We're in this because we want to help people and we want their healthcare to be as good as possible and shared decision-making helps that and facilitates that. So a lot of people are on board with it and it feels kind of a natural thing to do. It's just that we're giving it a name and a process for something that most, well, maybe not most, but a lot of clinicians do already.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So you're on the same team and you yeah you're working together and then when the pay it's like obviously better for them if the patients are happier you're providing them something that can help them have a better outcome for what they want anyway which is happy patients happy healthy patients
0: yeah exactly and um, also patients from a systems perspective from a money perspective um, patients tend to choose um, the lower cost option. So health service usage decreases when we use shared decision-making. So from a systems perspective, it's also a really good idea. So it's kind of win-win-win for everybody, but it's a difficult thing to implement. And I don't know that it's been implemented particularly well anywhere besides well actually Denmark is doing a really really good job of implementing shared decision making at the moment but they have invested a lot of times and a lot of time and resources into it
1: huh that's so interesting this would be a whole nother conversation but I was just thinking that's why it's so important the incentives because when there's things like doctors getting cuts of like referrals to go and get blood tests or or, you know, the pharma companies coming in and it's like, we'll, you know, give you all these perks, like the more you prescribe this and it's like massive conflicts. But hopefully that doesn't happen too much in Australia. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't happen too much in Australia. Um, the way
0: that it's definitely a US problem um, and the way that they're trying to think about changing or um, stopping that is to provide value-based incentives. So when a clinician does shared decision-making, I think they have it um, specifically for CT scans um, for some specific um, conditions that providers have to prove that they have done shared decision-making in order to be paid. So that's one way that they're trying to implement and work with it um, for Medicare and Medicaid patients um but yeah it's it's a challenging thing and different health services work in different ways and then different countries have different health systems and in australia we have different states that have different ways of doing things similar to canada so yeah the other unfortunate thing is that we don't have an ongoing funding mechanism for it in australia so we have policies that say that health services should be doing shared decision making but We don't have any funding mechanisms for it or really um, any way of measuring it properly. So we don't really know if it's happening in practice because the measures that we have are at an aggregate level. So they combine all of the data and we don't know what's going
1: on. Huh. So does that go back to your point about like the billions being wasted in research? It's like all the research is done, but it's like if you don't have the proper ways to fund the implementation and to track it it gets lost
0: yeah exactly so there's been all this research on shared decision making in particular about what's the barriers what are the facilitators what could we do to try and implement it but without that funding to do it in practice so you you know you need project managers you need Um, different resources to try and change practice. Without that funding mechanism, it can be really, really difficult. So even though we have it from a policy, the state policy says, the federal policy says, it's really, really hard to see it happen in practice. But the exciting thing, it sounds really doom and gloom when you say it like that, but I suppose the exciting thing is that there feels like there's a big groundswell in terms of shared decision-making. So when you talk to patients... They will quote the Charter of Healthcare Rights, which is, I should be involved in decisions about my care. Of course I should be involved, that's my right, which is pretty amazing to think that you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, it really wasn't the case. So we've come a long way and there's certainly a groundswell and um, clinicians are starting to change behaviour. So I think
1: it's just a matter of time before it's implemented more. Amazing. Yeah. Cause I guess that's the other way. It's like, if more, you know, people listening to this now, they know that they can be part of decision-making. And then if they're in that situation and they're not, they can ask the question or, you know, feel more empowered to do so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I suppose if you're, if at an individual level, just to think when you go to see a different healthcare provider, thinking through, well, would there be any other options? You can say to them, are there any other options? What's, How do those options compare? And then, you know, try and ask some questions or think about your own values and preferences and goals before you go in so that you can be ready to um, think about them when you're going through different decision-making opportunities.
1: Yeah, cool. Okay. Shall I ask you the last three questions, or yeah. anything else to add?
0: You can ask me last um,
1: questions. Okay yeah. how How do you stay grounded?
0: Um, I think taking my dog out for walks is the number one way I stay grounded. If I'm throughout my PhD, if I was ever stressed out, or which is pretty common in a PhD, um, he always comes over and. Reminds me that I've got to get outside. I've got to have fresh air. So, yeah, he certainly keeps me grounded. That and my friends and my family. What kind of dog is he? He is an Irish wolfhound. So he's a big 60 kilogram dog, but he's a great
1: big sook and he's beautiful. Oh, my God. Sweet. Okay. What is a book that's had a big impact on you?
0: Yeah, I think... A Little Life is been the most amazing book for me to read. Um, I would say, I saw a TikTok about this the other day, but um, someone said you should definitely not pick up A Little Life for a light read. It's not a light read. It is a, it is a be prepared to be really sucked in and to kind of go through the little life of these four people. So that's been a really incredible book. I highly, highly recommend it. It's really sad, right? It's incredibly sad. It's devastatingly sad, yeah.
1: Is it disturbing or just...?
0: Yeah, parts are, definitely. It's not for the faint of heart, um, but the way that it's written and the friendships that they form are really incredible and the world that you get brought into... Is pretty incredible. So, yeah, I, d- I don't want to give too much away by explaining what happened. So I would just say if you
1: want a pretty big read, that's a good one. <laughs> and what three words describe the best version of you? I think the best version of me is
0: honest, is motivated and is, well, this is more than three words, but trying to make the world a better place. Amazing. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. It's been so great to chat and to catch up and I'm glad that we got to go through the um, combi and to think through how you can actually use behavioural science instead of just thinking through it theoretically. So thank you.